Um, Christians say that Christ has won the victory for us. And yet today, in our everyday, day-to-day, opposition persists, doesn't it? Christians face opposition. I wonder how you feel about that this morning. Maybe you feel opposition just shouldn't be happening. Shouldn't be happening. Uh, Maybe you feel this morning as a Christian just done in and your perseverance is wearing thin. Or maybe today you feel like Christianity is so fragile that if things don't change, well, we'll be on our knees. Is that you? Well, here this morning is good news for us. Here in today's psalm is a psalm of survival. A psalm to give us confidence. It's a psalm that reminds us that God perseveres his people. That when we face opposition and we, we persevere, it's not a pointer to the fact that something's wrong. It's not a pointer to the fact that there are, there are issues going on. It's, it's, not, it's not that we're somehow weak or empty or inadequate or vulnerable. No, it's a pointer to a saviour. When opposition comes and we're persevering, it's because we have a divine deliverer, a divine preserver. Opposition in the midst of affliction, after all, is our history, isn't it? Uh, Think of the early church, the Lord Jesus crucified, risen and ascended, and the church told, take up your cross and follow me. It's a movement that shouldn't have lasted very long, really, is it? Take up a cross. Disciples aren't going to go very far, are they? (laughs) And the disciples, of course, all went about proclaiming Christ, and yet many died for their faith, didn't they? But the church survives. And this psalm celebrates that. It gets us confident. It gets us singing. There really is a divine preserver. Now, maybe you say, oh, if if only. If only the church was as, as secure as you say, Bobby. Well, in this psalm, we're going to see it's not if only God would preserve us. It's not if only he'd be with us in affliction. It's that he has been with us in affliction. And he will be with us in affliction. The centre of this psalm says the Lord is righteous. And that he protects his city and his people. They are far out of the reach of any enemy. God's people are secure. It's not a happy accident. It's not the product of a fragile negotiation. No, the centre of this psalm in verse 4 says, God is righteous. God is eternally the one who saves his people and defeats his enemies. This is a psalm to get us singing and confident. I trust and pray that's where you will be by the end of it. Now, let's look at the context of this psalm just to find our place again. You'll remember we've been in these Psalms of Ascent. Uh, they're a little songbook in the Old Testament used for the, the journeys to the triannual feast in, in Jerusalem. And you might remember that since Psalm 126, just over the page, the Psalms have kind of assumed that the travellers singing these Psalms have arrived. They're in Jerusalem. And now at the beginning of this Psalm, it's like the travellers turn around, look around and see enemies. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, begins the psalm. Now, you wouldn't have thought that's a psalm that's going to give us much confidence. (laughs) 
you kind of think the next line is going to be, greatly I've been afflicted, so I'm hanging up my boots. But that's not how this psalm goes, is it? Actually, we find out this psalm is being led by a song leader, isn't it? Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say. Let Israel now sing. Do you see the point of what this psalm is doing? Here is people who have been without voice, the voiceless. And now this psalm says you have a voice. Here is what you are to sing. God's people are now to speak. This psalm is going to give us confidence and it's going to help us to persevere even when enemies are in our midst. And there's two things we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see that this song leader calls us to declare triumph in spite of enemies. That's in verses 1 to 4. And we're going to see that we're called to declare shame on enemies in verses 5 to 8. So first, look, notice there's a call to declare a triumph in spite of enemies, verses 1 to 4. Look at those open verses again. Look how it reads. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, yes, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. You feel the note of triumph there? We've suffered since our youth, but our enemies haven't prevailed. Oh, it looked like they won, but they haven't. It's a cry of triumph. It's kind of an odd one, though, as well, isn't it? Because it's not a song of something achieved. It's a song about something survived, isn't it? This song leader speaks up and it's like, we as a nation have been afflicted since our youth. Now, what's that? When, was, when were the people of God in their youth? Well, I, I think this is probably referring back to Egypt. Do you remember they were, the people of God were a small family, ended up in Egypt, grew into a nation. And this song leader says to these people, says to us today, here's, here's your family history, all right? Since Egypt, we've been afflicted. We were slaves there. We were rescued, of course. But we've been afflicted by the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Philistines, the Assyrians. It's our family story, afflicted since we were young. And look at the metaphor of how it's described. Look at verse 3. The plowers ploughed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Whoa. Now that's a pretty grotesque image, isn't it, actually? It's an image of a, a human body, as it were, lying down and of having a combine harvester or an ancient equivalent tearing up the back of the body. It's not surprising, actually, that metaphor. You remember in the Bible, Adam was taken from the ground. So to describe a person like, a, like the ground, not, not very surprising. Um, made to lie down, face down. It's grotesque, isn't it? It's an image reminds me of that film, 12 Years of a Slave, if you've seen that. Images in the, in the deep south of America under slavery where the slaves were cruelly whipped and lashed within an inch of their life. It's brutal, isn't it? And it, This image, I think, is also horrific because of how the people are treated. They're treated as stuff to be used. I plough them for me. They're not people. They're something I can use and abuse. I can get a profit out of them. Plough for a harvest. But here's the note of triumph. Even though... God's people have been through that. They are called to sing, our enemies haven't prevailed. We have survived. We've got the victory. Now you go, whoa, like, how is that? Well, look at verse four. How have they survived? The Lord is righteous. He's cut the cord of the wicked. 
God's people have persevered here. And you know, it's not about their stamina. It's about God's character. The song declares the Lord is righteous. The Lord has come through for us. Not about us. It's about him. The implication here is, as the people of God persevere righteously, keep trusting God no matter what. Well, the Lord is righteous. He won't let them down. He'll prove himself faithful. He'll he'll rescue them. And this psalm says the Lord has done exactly that. He's done what's right. He's cut the cord of the wicked. Now, you might think there of that image of kind of slaves in bonds having those kind of cords cut. And I think that's there. But we've also got that metaphor here, haven't we, of the plowers plowing. They think of the oxen and their yoke and they pull behind them a plow. And that's the image. These enemies plowing your back. But actually the cord's been cut. The plow's stuck in the field. If only the enemies would just look behind them, they'd find out all that heaving and hoeing and huffing and puffing. God's intervened. They're not achieving what they want to at all, actually, in the end. So this song sings, greatly have they afflicted us since our youth. And we go, yeah, as a Christian, I've experienced that since my earliest days. I've known opposition. But they've not prevailed for the Lord is righteous. He's cut the cord. And we go, okay, well, that part I'm less sure about. How, how, how's that? How can I sing verse 2 and verse 4? Well, I think today we can sing Psalm 129. Because I think this song is sung by Jesus for us. I think these are Jesus' words. Who is it who can say, greatly have they afflicted me since my youth? Do you remember Jesus born the babe in Bethlehem and Herod saying, I will slaughter all the innocents there to stop that king. Greatly have they afflicted (laughs) me from my youth. Who was it who lived in obscurity and normality until one day he steps out onto the stage and straight away there are death threats. Well, it's the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Who is it who really can say, as he was beaten and mocked, they have ploughed my back and they have not prevailed? It's Jesus, isn't it? Psalm 129 is Jesus. And let me say, we're not the first people to notice that this morning. Again, let me take you, the the imagery is so vivid, I can't help but do this. Take, Take yourself to... So again, the slave trade and the United States and those cotton plantations. You know, the guys who suffered slavery there, they saw this link. In those spiritual songs, those deep gospel songs that they sung, they saw Jesus. They they sang, nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I see. Glory, hallelujah. Or here's another one of these songs. Poor little Jesus boy. Made him be born in a manger. Well treated him so mean. Treats me mean too. They whipped him up. And they whipped him down. They whipped that man all over the town. Look how they done my Lord. I was there when they nailed him to the cross. Oh how it makes me sadder, sadder. When I think how they nailed him to the cross. I was there when they nailed him down. Oh how it made my spirit tremble. When I recall how they took him down. Jesus is the man afflicted. He is the one afflicted over whom they did not prevail. He is the one sentenced to death. 
and now risen and reigning. He is the one who has seen the cords of the wicked cut. Why? There was a song about that 700 years before Jesus came. Isaiah 53 promised this, that there would be a saviour. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a song we sing because of Jesus. Because he was smitten for us. The cord of the wicked is broken. The biggest weapon that stands against us this day is the consequences of our sin, the curse of sin and death. And Jesus says, sing this, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, but they have not prevailed. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cord and he has done so at the cross. You see, any oppression we face, any affliction we face, has to reckon with the fact that Christians, we don't stand on our own, do we? We stand with a risen saviour who declares to us a triumph and calls us to declare it too. We stand with one who has prevailed. Even death could not beat Jesus. And so nothing could hold him down. And so nothing can hold us down. Now you go, oh wow, Ollie, you know that. That sounds outrageous. How can I sing like that? What I want to say, we need to sing like that, don't we? We need confidence to, to go through times of difficulty, to go through times of opposition. We need it, don't we? And this is the place where we get it. This is the place where we get confidence and hope for a future. This is the place where we can sing of righteousness in the end. Of death defeated. You know, the founder of Islam cannot sing this song. The founder of Islam can't sing of death defeated. Hinduism, for all its many gods, cannot sing of a crucified, risen saviour. The meditations of Buddha did not save him from death. He too is dead. The Lord Jesus is the one risen. Who can say my enemies did not prevail against me. He can declare the Lord is righteous. And I have not been beaten. And he can call us to persevere on that basis. He really can declare to us the Lord is righteous. You know we often say to each other when we're struggling. Oh it'll be alright in the end. There'll be a righteous outcome. And over those little cups of tea we say it. We sort of think that sounds nice. Um, can we be sure of it? Well, Christian, we can be sure of it, that the Lord is righteous. We know that God has acted in righteousness to punish sin at the cross in Jesus. We know that the Lord deals with sin. And he is a saviour. And so we know he will act in righteousness again. He will save his people and he will come again to make all things right and he will come and he will take out the trash and he will make the world anew. And so, Christian, you can have confidence. You can sing of survival. You can sing of triumph, even in spite of enemies. Is your Christianity fragile? Actually, no, it is not. Maybe you feel worn, thin, and like you're going to crumble. Well, friend, see the confidence you have here. 
For we may sing this song and hear how they didn't beat Jesus. Even though he was crucified, he won. This story is our song, isn't it? Christians are opposed. We do suffer affliction. And this song doesn't deny that that hurts deeply. But it reminds us that we can't be beaten. Not because of who we are, but because of who God is and because of what he's done and what he's shown himself to be at the cross. There's a call here to declare the triumph of God in spite of enemies. But look, secondly, there's a call here to declare shame on the enemies. And that's there in verses 5 to 8. A call to declare shame on the enemies. The leader of this song has got us singing, our enemies haven't prevailed. And now the the end of the song kind of tilts towards those enemies a bit. Uh, And it feels a bit awkward. Look at verse 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Here's a song that declares shame on enemies. And we think, oh, should we really... Should we really sing that? It kind of feels like we're asked to kind of turn our back on them. Kind of, you know, in those kind of contexts, it's like turn your back to kind of spit and show, you know, you're awful sort of thing. Send them home packing. Can I really sing that? Shame in the Bible is an image of nakedness, of being exposed, of everyone seeing your guilt and your failings. I think if that's what this psalm is about, I think it is then these words make a great deal of sense, don't they? This psalm is just simply saying, those who oppose us cruelly, let everyone see them for who they are. And see the shame in it. The Old Testament scholar Alec Matir, terrific guy, um, says if we balk at these words, even though they're hard, um, it shows either we've never been through tough times, um, life-threatening situations, or we lack the imagination to think of what it would be like. If we don't get these words, he suggests these words, verse 5 to 8, are the way we commit life-threatening situations to the Lord. He says we shouldn't be afraid of vigorous, realistic prayers. And certainly, this is that, isn't it? I look again at how, look again at this, this prayer. Picks up the metaphor from earlier. Let them, the enemies, be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arm. Nor do they say, those who pass by say, oh, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. No. That message, the metaphor of that field comes up again, speaking of the enemies, except this time it's not a field so much as a rooftop. And the psalmist prays, might our enemies be like those people on the rooftop? I mean, they are. They dwell on the heights. They look down their noses at us. But let them be like... Be like the plants on the rooftop. You know, maybe you've seen around ride kind of plants growing out the top of walls. Um, Maybe you've got like a flat roofed garage or a shed or something. You notice occasionally bits of moss and plants growing on your roof or in a kind of shallow gutter. And they last for a bit, but when the weather changes, they they die out and there's not much of them. It turns brown, there's nothing, nothing much there. And the psalm says to God, make our enemies like that. Make it so that they don't, they're, their life and their work doesn't amount to anything. When people walk by them, they don't go, oh, wow, wasn't that, wasn't that so worthwhile? What a wonderful harvest. Make it so no one bothers to say that. There'll be no blessing for them. Of course, it drives a reflection, doesn't it? So this prayer prays, let them not have a harvest. 
But it does remind us of those earlier verses, doesn't it? We've been ploughed. The Christian has been ploughed, according to verse 3. You see, the, the enemies won't get any harvest. But this passage suggests that when we face affliction, it's, it's like ploughing. It's not fruitless. You plough for a, for a harvest. This, part of, this passage reminds us that fruit comes when we persevere in times of opposition. If you have been afflicted, you have been ploughed, according to verse 3. It's that lovely encouragement that while the enemy's efforts won't produce anything, our perseverance will. It won't be worthless. Sometimes we feel that, don't we? Opposition, oh, what's the point of this? Might as well throw the towel in. What's it going to achieve? Well, this passage says, oh, the Lord is coming again. There will be a harvest. You have been ploughed. It will be fruitful, even if you have no idea how. It reminds me of a story again in the deep south of America, a man called Peter who was a slave. One day he had such a beating and whipping that he and some other slaves decided to escape the plantation. One of them was shot there and then on site. The other three managed to get away. They'd had to, this is a graphic detail, they had to cut up onions to put in their injuries on their back because the slavers would hire slave hunters with bloodhounds that would track the scent of their blood. So you had to put onions in your wound to disturb the scent. Can you believe that? Well, these three gentlemen eventually made it somewhere safe. And in the end, Peter was photographed uh, showing the wounds on his back and the, 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 the tearing and the, the deep wounds that he had. You can imagine how fruitless he thought it had all been as he suffered on the plantation. But in the end, that photograph that was taken was published in newspapers and it got round the white communities of the states and the people were so horrified that it was one of the factors that led to the end of the slave trade. Seeing Peter's back. You see, his scars provided salvation for others. Where he was ploughed, there was a harvest. He had no idea of that, did he? And that's the sort of image here, isn't it? A huge encouragement. We have no idea what will come as we keep going. But our passage says it's like ploughing. There will be a harvest. Keep going. Now the contrast is that there will be little harvest for some. That there will be an end to their regime for the others. Do you see then this, this psalm points us at exactly what to ask for. That it's, it's absolutely okay and right and proper. This is the, this is the justice to ask for. That enemies who oppose Christ would, would be brought to nothing. And this passage describes that will happen because the Lord is righteous. They will be brought to nothing. At the end of this psalm, we find the voice return for us. His confidence. Right? A triumph. And his shame. This is what will happen. This is what we can pray for. For those that oppose Christ. But as we think on it, we recognise how pitiable the end of this psalm is, don't we? How tragic, how terrible. We're called to sing, but by the end, no one's talking to these enemies. It's all rather sad, isn't it? Which I think actually helps us to pray this prayer. They have no hope of heaven. Their future is judgment. And so how right it is that we pray that they might wither, in a sense. That they might be undone and find themselves where? 
at the cross of Christ. It is absolutely right to pray this prayer. We had a prayer meeting uh, last Wednesday. And we were praying about the situation in Ukraine and praying about Mr. Putin. And some folk were praying, pray that Putin would stop. Others were praying, pray that Putin became a Christian. They go, well, that's weird. How do, how do we pray those two things in the same prayer meeting? That sounds completely at odds. I don't think it is. We're asking the Lord to be righteous. It is absolutely righteous that he should stop Putin. But it is also absolutely righteous that he should act to deal with sins at the cross in order to save. Both are righteous outcomes, aren't they? This is absolutely a prayer that we can pray that justice might be done. We need not be afraid of praying for the undoing of opposition to Christ, of shaming of his enemies. In fact, Jesus shamed his enemies, didn't he? You remember all those times when Jesus was attacked, asked questions, and he turned the questions on those that accused him, and they ended up ashamed? You remember on one occasion, Jesus told a a parable about someone sowing some seed. Now that brought shame on his enemies. Reminds us of this psalm, actually, by the way, doesn't it? And can you remember how the greatest, most shameful act in history, the Lord Jesus turned to shame on his enemies, didn't he? At the cross, humanity tried to murder its maker. And as they acted in hate, as we acted in hate, Jesus acted to save. The moment they cried, ha, cursed on the tree, it brought them shame, didn't it? As he died to save me and you. Wow. These psalms call God to action and they're nothing to be embarrassed about. They're earthy, they're realistic, they're just and good, and it enables us to express our hearts to God. To ask for our enemies to be put to shame, turned back, to be made fruitless, it's only proper. And it's what we require, isn't it? To survive as a Christian, we need to know the Lord is righteous. We need to know that we can cry to him for help. We need to know that we can ask him for opposition to stop. It's okay. Now, sometimes today people talk about fight and flight responses. You may have heard that. I think it's very flawed, but we won't talk about that now. But this psalm, doesn't it help us to persevere? Because it kind of helps us fight in a way, doesn't it? Not fighting against people. But it helps us to know that God fights for us. Gives perseverance, doesn't it? It also kind of gives us flight as well, doesn't it? I can fly to God. I've got somewhere to go. But at the same time, I don't need to run away. I can sit it out because I know the Lord will cut the cords. Of the wicked. I don't need to run anywhere. The Lord is righteous. It's good, isn't it, this song? As we close then, I'd like us to reflect. Imagine yourself like the singer of this song, right? They get to Jerusalem, he turns around. Greatly have they afflicted me since my youth. He sees his enemies <laughs> who've opposed him. Imagine yourself there. How do you feel? How will you feel? The next moment that kind of, you're in that kind of situation, it's like, oh, I'm getting so much grief for being a Christian. Will you feel like, oh, affliction shouldn't be happening? Will you feel fragile? Will you feel worn thin? And what would you say? What would you tell yourself? Oh, I must carry on. This is down to me. Well, remember this psalm. This psalm of survival. It isn't about your stamina. It's about the Lord. 
And I hope as you stand in that situation, next time it comes, which may be very soon, I hope you'll hear Jesus sing to you. I hope you'll hear Jesus call to you with the words of this song. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let all my people now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cord of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned around. The Lord is righteous indeed, isn't he? Shall we pray? Would you bow your head and as we pray now, just think about what you need to hear the most from the Lord. Perhaps we might pray and ask the Lord, what do I need to hear? What do I need to take home from this morning? And perhaps you need to see that image of affliction as ploughing, that there's a purpose to it. Maybe that's something that you need to take away this morning. Um, perhaps you need to see that you shouldn't be depending on yourself, but on God. Perhaps you needed to see this morning that the Lord is righteous and to start trusting him. Perhaps today you've resented difficulty in the Christian life and you've been made even more resentful by the fact that you felt you couldn't talk to God about it. Or perhaps you need to hear today that it's okay to ask for opposition to stop. Or perhaps you just needed reminding today that the Lord has indeed cut the cord of the wicked. Perhaps today you just need to be reminded he has proven his righteousness. Well, let's pray that in and let's lay it before the Lord. Our Lord God, our righteous saviour, we praise you. Because though we face opposition, no one can prevail over us. For we are secure in you. We are saved by the blood of Christ. We are well out of harm's way. You are righteous. Thank you that we can trust you to come through for us. And I pray now that we might go away strengthened. That we might sing this song of confidence. And it might strengthen us and give us courage. To walk by faith in the Son in times of affliction. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.